hello everybody, this is Manny Escamilla, the Full Metal Archivist, coming out of another uh, beginning to be sweltering day in the city of Santa Ana, uh, right before the Labor Day weekend. Um, I hope you're all doing well, uh, staying safe, and just enjoying your time uh, with each other during this uniquely historical uh, experience that we're all going through. So uh, today uh, we have a uh, another special guest. So uh, you know all the candidates that come on the show are special because it takes a special kind of person to run. Believe me, um, it's one of these things where you know running for a position is hard. Um, it takes a lot out of you. Um, you're never going to please everybody, and uh, there's going to be a lot of stuff online that you don't want to. You know what's the, I think the number one rule is don't read the comments, um, but you will read the comments, right? And it's it's one of these things where you know there's always a challenge of um, you know trying to be a newcomer and there's some advantages there versus uh, being someone that's been around for for a while. And uh, today we have someone that's been around for a while. So it's a uh, uh, council member Sarmiento who's uh, running for the mayor. Um, it's a pretty big. Uh, deal because this is going to be, you know, no matter what happens, this is going to be our first new mayor uh, since Polito uh, took office. And he's, um, so he's termed out. And Vince is uh, running for that position as mayor uh, of Santa Ana. So uh, we, you know, had a pretty in-depth discussion with him, talked a lot about uh, different issues that uh, he's going to be facing there, kind of what his perspective is um, on um, you know, what's going on in Santa Ana right now and kind of what some of the, that outlook is. So I uh, had some, some really, uh, you know, so look forward to some really good uh, discussion there. And uh, I do want to caveat uh, this, you know, and just to be totally transparent, is that um, I like Vince as a candidate. I think that he is the, uh, the better uh, choice uh, uh, kind of coming out of this election cycle. So I want you all to know that rather than me trying to hide that fact. Um, but, you know, please uh, listen, uh, decide uh, for yourself if that, you know, is something you agree with or not. Um, and yeah, hopefully uh, we'll be able to get some other candidates uh, on uh, onto the podcast. It's going to be a little bit more challenging this time because I think last time there's only three candidates uh, that we needed to go through. Uh, this time there's like five candidates for one race, and I think there's like four to five races that we could go through. So um, it, I think I'm going to be a little bit more selective uh, this time around with, with who I invite, um, just solely due to the fact because uh, it's, it's a timing crunch, like quite honestly. Um, so I want to let you... Uh, hear from some of the folks that I think are bringing in some interesting perspectives. But, uh, you know, this is uh, obviously um, going to be different, I think, than the, the last cycle, just because of the sheer fact that, um, you know, 20 people is a lot more than three um, to interview. So, uh, you know, please bear that in mind as you listen to uh, Vince and I uh, talk for the next uh, hour. Uh, hello, um, Councilmember Sarmiento. I'm just uh, hoping if uh, you could introduce yourself a, a little bit. Sure. Thanks, Manny. Um, well, I'm Vicente Sarmiento, uh, member of the Santa Ana City Council. You can call me Vince. Uh, that's perfect. But um, yeah, I just wanted to, you know, appreciate being on your on your podcast. Looking forward to having a good discussion. Yeah, no. Well, well thanks for coming on. I know we were trying to you know, figure out the, the schedule and I'm sure it's completely chaotic for you right so what's it like uh running for mayor in in the city of santa Ana? yeah not not too not too many complicated factors going on all at the same time right so uh you know not only running for a seat that's been um you know uh where there has been an incumbent for the past 26 years so this will be the first time um 
you know, that there will be an open seat for mayor available. And so it is historic in that sense. It's also historic that um, in the three cycles that I've been uh, on the ballot here in Santa Ana, this is the first time we're, we're running in a global pandemic environment, right, where we can't do traditional and conventional retail politicking, where we're, um, you know, meeting with people and talking to people and and um, being able to have that human connection. This is really um, kind of odd because, you know, the whole idea uh, behind, I think, um, you know, uh, having the voters and having folks get to know you is just to understand not only your position on public policy issues, but who you are as a person, right? And your character and your temperament. And um, a lot of that has to do with just that human contact. So that's what we're missing. And I think that, um, you know, it's unfortunate, but um, look to say that, you know, politics is, you know, uh, is just one of the victims of this, of this time is, you know, um, is, is important because it's a historic uh, election cycle, I think, but you know, so many other people are, are dealing with so many serious concerns uh, during this pandemic that I feel like, well, relatively speaking, this isn't as important as some people, you know, losing their jobs, not having enough uh, food, being ill, and dealing with you know um, poor health care, poor health conditions. So, re- relatively speaking, look, I feel blessed because we're still able to message uh, with to people, especially given you know um, channels and platforms like this. Well, again, I uh, definitely appreciate you uh, you being on here. Um, so what is it that you're actually looking to do? Like, so what, you know, for anyone kind of listening in, um, what is the actual vision as far as like what you're seeing here for the city? Uh, you mean um, just with with respect to um, the, the, the mayor's race and maybe my position um, uh, on, on what I see as my vision, I guess, is... Um, Look, there's a there's a short term um, game and there's a long term game, right? Short term, I think we're dealing with a public health crisis that people are still um, going to be facing uh, post November. Uh, I think that you know we see that the numbers are very high of um, positive COVID related cases. Santa Ana is leading the county, unfortunately, and the county is one of the most impacted counties by um, by the virus in the state. So we're certainly not in a good place. Um, you know, uh, that's as a result of having a lot of people in, in Santana who are essential workers. Um, so there's a perfect storm kind of brewing for our folks who, um, you know, who are dealing with this, with the consequences of this pandemic. You know, we have um, many people who are, you know, essential workers working in hospitals, working in grocery stores, stocking shelves. We have people working in the nursing care faci- uh, facilities. Um, and then they come home to another environment, which is really difficult and, and makes things worse, is that they're living in overcrowded conditions because of the, um, you know, uh, high rents. So you have two and three families sometimes having to live in one unit. So when somebody comes home, they spread the virus much, much easier because they're in very densely, not only, um, you know, a po- densely populated city, but they're in a densely uh, 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 area. So unit, right? So, you know, their living conditions are very dense as well. That on top of many of our folks um, in town who already have underlying health conditions like obesity, diabetes, hypertension. So that really is the, the you know, the worst set of um circumstances for our folks. And so that's the short-term game is to continue to provide relief uh, 
so people can get their medical attention um, and also just, you know, being able to stay um, housed, right? Um, because we know a lot of people have lost their jobs. A lot of people can't make rent. Um, they now have, you know, health concerns. And the long-term vision is obviously the economic, um, uh, the, you know, the economic uh, difficulties that, are, that people are going to have post, you know, uh, COVID as this thing starts settling down, and we hope it will soon. Um, a lot of businesses are going to fail. A lot of people are still going to be without work. A lot of people are going to be challenged again with just being able to stay in their um, in their homes and in their apartments. Um, so those are the things that I see as both a you know uh, you know a short term and a long term immediate um, immediate needs that we're going to have to have to satisfy. All right. So you know for for those that don't necessarily follow politics that that much or that that closely, right? It's um, you know I think a. A lot of us that are involved in, in these kinds of discussions in these circles um, um, are sometimes unaware as to how significantly like people just move on their, to their day to day lives. So, like, why does it? You know, why does the mayoralship even matter to like the everyday lives of people here? Yeah, I think you know, just bringing it down to like just really a common denominator is that you know a mayor really does influence public policy in the city and how resources and, um, and um, um, uh, assets are allocated, right? So there's seven, obviously seven council members, including uh, the mayor here in Santa Ana. This is not a strong mayor city. This is a, you know, more of a city manager form of government. But I think the mayor uh, has a unique role because they're directly elected by uh, the voters here in Santa Ana to set that direction and set that, um, you know, those public policy decisions and, you know, working with the city manager and the other council members, but the mayor really does have a pivotal role in deciding, uh, or at least influencing, you know, the direction of public policy. And, and I think, um, you know, for better, or for worse, you know, having somebody there for 26 years, um, that has really made it difficult to introduce new ideas, you know, our, changing demographic in the city or changing needs. Um, and I think it, we are at a really historic moment where um, I think a new mayor and new council members, because one person can, can't change the direction of a city, but I think a mayor can help set the, um, the agenda and set the plate for, of, of issues that are important to, to tackle. All right. Well, and I guess to that, so I have uh, two, two follow-up questions into to something that you said. The first one, again, what is a strong mayor form of government versus a city manager form? Because, you know, uh, I think a lot of people don't realize that there is uh, a, a difference there. And if you can kind of run through that explanation. And before I forget, um, you were talking about the the ability to kind of allocate uh, resources and the, the importance of that with the mayor. But what would you do that's actually different than anyone else uh, to kind of fill the seat? Yeah. So I think the difference between a strong mayor form of government and a city manager form of government, um, we have a city manager form of government. A strong mayor uh, government would be sort of, I guess, you know, analogous. And, you know, we can use the example of Los Angeles. So they have a strong mayor form of government where the mayor um, doesn't really deliberate, uh, you know, with the council. The council has its council president and its council members, and they go ahead and deliberate, make decisions. And, you know, to the extent that the mayor plays a role in executing that, he is sort of separate and apart from the council. Um, here, uh, you know, uh, the city manager form of government, we're sort of a board of directors and we um, 
delegate operations and and you know some decision making, um, although not unilateral decision making to the to the um, city manager. So she she or he basically manages the city, right? Um, and we set um, the policy uh, and we you know approve the budget. So we are limited in what we can do. We can't hire and fire folks. Um, in a city manager form of government, that is not our responsibility. That is not not uh, something that we're vested with. Um, but we can give direction to the city manager on what we think is important. I think, um, you know, with respect to setting, you know, the direction on the allocation of resources, again, it's not unfettered because the council can come back and say, um, no, we don't agree with the mayor's direction. But we do, and most city manager forms of government where a mayor is directly elected, you do delegate some responsibilities to the mayor to go uh, obviously represent us at different, um, you know, um, uh, regional boards and commissions like the transit authority, um, you know, the air quality management district. And therefore that the mayor is speaking on behalf of the city. So uh, it is important. I think, you know, it, it, it has some exclusive uh, domain uh, that the other council members don't have. Sometimes, you know, the mayor is given um, the opportunity to speak on behalf of the city. And so, you know, as we know, um, just observing, you know, national politics, words really matter, right? And so uh, to the extent that you have a mayor that's outspoken on some issues and maybe, um, you know, uh, not so supportive of other, of other issues, that really does set the trend of what, you know, what, the city manager and staff are going to be putting before the council to discuss. So, you know, the mayor can really set the table when it comes to those things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think that uh, you hit on this really interesting point uh, right at the end as, as far as what's uh, brought forth uh, to the public, where sometimes um, off the off the cuff remarks from the uh, the seven on the dais uh, really influence policy sometimes without even realizing that, you know, policy is being decided just in the, the form of a conversation. Um, yeah. So I, I guess I, for most folks, they, they would know you as a, as a council member here, but like in that you are essentially, I think, um, besides uh, Polito right now, are you the longest serving um, person on the dais right now? I know Solaro is in and was out and has been like in various, various <laughs> uh, seats all up and down the state now. Um, but as far as like serving as a, on, the, on the current council, would that be uh, you besides um, uh, Polito? Yeah, you know, what's interesting is that I think that's true. Um, all of us have served at some point. Um, and, and it's funny because the four that, well, there's six of us who are running for, for the mayor's seat. Four of us um, have served together at some point. I know I've served with both, um, you know, Jose and I've served with Claudia and I've served with um, Ceci as well. Um, but I think consistently I've been on the council longer than anybody. I think Claudia served 12 years. I think Jose served some years previously and then some, you know, recently uh, an additional term since 2016. So another four years on top of what he served before. And then Cecilia, Cecilia was with us for a brief time. Um, so, you know, uh, yeah, I've, I've, I'm winding up my last term. Um, so I will be um, termed out um, in November from my council seat which um, our charter allows when somebody is termed out to be able to run for mayor at that point and vice versa. So if a mayor uh, who was directly elected and hadn't served as, as a council member could come back and run for their council seat. So, uh, um, you know, that that's the way that shaped up. But um, 
but yeah, I think that, um, you know, for me, I've never run for anything else. Uh, I know I've been asked to run for, uh, an assembly seat. Uh, I have been asked to run for, you know, a state Senate seat, um, and uh, the congressional seat and even, you know, the board of supervisors seat that I took a real close look at as well. But, you know, I, for me, I've, um, you know, I haven't been up and down the state and I haven't really even taken any of the, any other positions locally. Um, you know, and that, that's just been a personal decision because, you know, I felt like, well, if I'm going to govern, let me govern where I think, um, you know, I can make a difference. I, I was governing more because it was important to me as opposed to for me to just govern anywhere. Right. Um, I think that it was important for me to try to lend my skills and my experience to, um, municipal government and, you know, this public agency, um, but really, you know, not just looking to find a home. And I don't, you know, I don't, I'm trying, I don't want to throw shade on anybody who does, but that's just, you know, kind of the way I see it. Yeah. It seems like a, a different priority set for sure. Um, right. So how is Santa Ana home then? Like what is, what is the connection story there? Like for, for you and in, in the city? Yeah. So, you know, Look, we, um, our family arrived in Santa Ana in, in, in 1965. So, um, you know, I arrived as a, you know, uh, as a young child, I was a year old, so I just disclosed my age to you. Um, but you know, it was, you know, it's hometown. It's the kind of, it's the city that adopted me and adopted us. And, you know, uh, I went to elementary school at John Muir, the original John Muir that was on fourth and grand that was severed in the 1971 earthquake. So the reason why there's another John Wayne or John Muir, excuse me, John Wayne, uh, John Muir over by Portola Park um, is because this one was, um, you know, there was a big earthquake in 71, damaged a lot of structures. Um, and one of them was the original, uh, you know, John Muir Elementary. And so they bust a lot of us to what was then an elementary school called Sierra, which is now an intermediate school. Um, so uh, we went there and then I attended intermediate school at Willard. And, um, and so our family has been here since then. And, you know, we, um, uh, you know, I went away to college, you know, came back, went, went to Berkeley, your alma mater, uh, Mr. Escamilla, go bears. Um, and that's where I met my wife. So, you know, we, we met at Cal and, um, and, uh, you know, so we take our kids on a trip to Berkeley every year. Well, when, when, when things were safe and we would tell them, well, this is Mecca. Right. You know, if this didn't exist, you guys wouldn't exist. So, um, so you know, uh, after that, you know, I went on, I took a few years off and, and then went off to law school at UCLA. And uh, and then we came back home. And, and so, you know, there's been that connection with the city because of that history. So <clears throat> I'm Bolivian born. I was born in La Paz, Bolivia. Um, and my wife is from Zacatecas, Mexico. So our kids have gotten to know Mexico really well because it's just closer, right? Bolivia is a 14 hour plane ride from here. Whereas, you know, um, you can get to Zacatecas in a couple hours by plane. Um, but it's been, uh, you know, it's, it's been a great journey and it's been sort of a, you know, uh, a dream of mine to be able to just give back because I know, you know, I received so much from the, from the city and from the town. Um, and you know, that's what kind of brought me back home. And now, uh, we live like three blocks from where I grew up in this uh, old historic home that um, that we were blessed enough to find and restore. Um, and, you know, it's it's been great. We've raised three kids here who are now one's in college, one's a senior in high school, one's a freshman. So, um, yeah, it's it's been a, it's been a wild ride. 
So uh, do you have any uh, interesting war stories from your time on the council? I know there, there's uh, you know, a lot of ground to cover there, but you know, what, what, what's, what's that like? Holy cow, man, that is that is an open ended question and that, you know, we could be here for days. But, you know, the one thing I can tell you is that um, we've seen the pen. At least I've seen the pendulum swing since I've come on the council. Um, it's funny because when I came on in 2007, uh, the 2008 recession was looming at that time. So here I came on uh, thinking this is great. We know where, you know, things are really looking up. And then 2008, 2009 happens and everything, you know, just gets really, really dismal, right? Um, You know, the global, you know, economy fails and we were close to, I think our operating budget in the city um, went as low as $3 million. And so, you know, red lights flashing, crisis, um, and I'm a bankruptcy attorney by practice. So we were very close to filing what's called a chapter nine. Chapter nine is when a municipal or local government has to file for bankruptcy protection. Um, and so I had at that time not been on the council very long, but I did um, see that, uh, you know, we had outside consultants telling us there is no way you're going to salvage this. You have to file now. And so a lot of communities like Stockton, Vallejo, um, you know, the city of San Bernardino all ended up filing chapter nines. And we were very close because those were the recommendations from the outside consultants. But I know that, um, you know, my colleagues who have been practicing much longer in the bankruptcy um, area said, don't do it. Because if you look at what the county did when they've had to file their chapter nine, I mean, there are still vestiges of that harm that was done to that public agency. So you basically don't have, you're, you're basically um, foregoing your autonomy to be able to govern. And it's now when you're in a bankruptcy, you're having a federal bankruptcy judge govern your city or your, you know, um, your community um, from their uh, seat. And so that was something none of us wanted to do. And I think it, you know, it was, it was interesting to come on a city council when that was happening because none of us saw that, right. Nobody gets into the business of uh, public policy or governing, knowing that you're going to have to make some really difficult decisions like um, furloughing folks, like having to cut services, like having to lose your uh, fire department that uh, um, preceded the founding of our city, right? Our fire department had was founded two years or a few years before the city was founded. So disengaging with them and then having to go uh, on with um, uh, the Orange County Fire Authority, um, was were some really tough decisions that none of us, you know, nobody signs up for. And now, as I'm winding up my career, um, we're hit with a global pandemic. So I've been bookended by these two historic moments that um, uh, really test your uh, your metal, right? And test, you know, who you are and whether you can weather these. But that's one of the things I think that maybe distinguishes me from others. That I think that um, you know I've tried to show leadership during this pandemic and making sure that there's relief to people who are really struggling right now. And I know I've advocated really, um, you know, forcefully for rental assistance for the moratorium against um, uh, residential evictions against just, you know, um, you know, grants for people just to get through when it comes to utilities, not citing them for, you know, some of the parking citations that they receive when, you know, we sweep our streets, just basic things that can add up for those, who are not as blessed as maybe you and I that can work from home. I mean, these are folks that are living paycheck to paycheck, you know, month to month. 
and any little change on that really compromises their ability to um, be safe, right? So I think that, you know, for me, that's, I think, where um, where I'm proud of the work that we've done, you know, getting ourselves out of the recession, because our economy was really looking good, Manny. I mean, we, uh, I mean, we had, because uh, uh, one of the things after the recession, um, you know, we were the council that brought us a fiscal reserve policy, like really strict, right, where we had to have at least 20%. Now I think it's down to 17 or 16%. But we had close to $40, $50 million set aside because when the recession hit us, we realized that previous councils had never done that. So when we're all looking at ourselves saying, where's the rainy day fund? Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're saying there is no rainy day fund. Yep, and I we d- thought, "How? yeah, I'm not sure if you remember that. but I, I, mean, I, I definitely do. I was uh, I was on the chopping block, so I was uh, just, just squeezed in. Yeah, you know, and, and, and that was unfortunate because we lost a lot of talent. We lost a lot of assets and, you know, a lot of people were harmed and I just thought it was so, you know, incomprehensible for me to think that, you know, nobody was saying, Hey, what if something happens? We, you know, we all kind of budget those things, even as families and individuals, you know, Hey, what, we got to have something set aside just in case. And for a city as large as ours, not to have that. Um, so we, you know, we, we have that and we still do, um, you know, it's probably, um, you know, uh, going to be difficult to maintain that given where we're looking, you know, where, wh- what um, we're forecasting for the next year or two um, as a consequence of this pandemic. But those are the things I'm proud of that, you know, we were able to at least, you know, if I'm not around post November to the extent that um, uh, other councils will at least have this policy that will ensure that there is some safety net for them. Wow. So what, what does <coughs> the budget look like right now? Like how, how bad is it? Well, it, you know, we were able to balance, you know, in this past cycle, right? So in 2020, 2021, but going into next year, I mean, I think we we do see that, um, you know, pensions, you know, uh, that unfunded liability number is really scary. Um, so, you know, we, we're just trending the wrong way, right? I mean, our revenues are just not... Um, uh, are, are, are not trending as fast as some of the liabilities that we have. So, um, you know, the concern is that there is that structural deficit that we have embedded in there. And so what I'm hoping is that, um, you know, one of the things I, I know I've wanted to introduce and I've been speaking with um, our city manager about is um, going out and refinancing our um, our pension debt and our POB. Um, so, you know, to the extent that, you know, rates are very low right now, um, we can make a difference. I mean, I've seen estimates of us being able to save close to 70, 100 billion. Um, and if we're intelligent about it, and, you know, if we do that work uh, ahead of time, I'm actually, um, right now, the city's representative on the Orange County Water District. So I represent the city of Santa Ana on that board. And um, my colleagues there voted me in as president. So I am presiding over that agency. And, We've uh, refinanced a lot of our debt there. And, you know, because we're dealing with some um, problems with respect to a contaminant that they uh, not just detected, but, you know, have increased the standards for that are affecting a lot of um, producers in the in the county. Um, we've had to revisit some of our uh, some of our debt structure. And, you know, we've refinanced a lot of um, a lot of our um, debt and we've been able to save a lot of money there. And I'm hoping to bring that same sort of fiscal leadership to the uh, to the city so we can, you know, 
at least not be looking at such a dismal picture. Right. Yeah, because I think um, it's, it's one of these items that um, what is it prior to the change in state law? I'm not sure exactly when, when it happened where, where we didn't really know what was going into our unfunded um, uh, pensions or what, you know, how big that uh, pile was. Uh, but now if we look at it in the yearly um, budget, I think it's up to 11 or 13 percent of the discretionary fund is going into the unfunded uh, pension uh, liability right now. Right. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a big chunk of money and it doesn't um, it doesn't get a, enough attention sometimes because uh, I think it's actually bigger than about every agency except for maybe three <laughs> seems to seems to be it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I know that there was a, um, you know, there was litigation involving, you know, a lot of what the cities are facing with that unfunded liability. And and, um, you know, short of that, I mean, short of there being some sort of um, precedent setting case that will, you know, restructure that debt. Um, many cities are looking at some very, again, uh, unfavorable forecasts for the next few years. So I think, you know, one of the things I, I don't want us to be in a position of is just being flat-footed and thinking about this when the problem is upon us. We need to see that if we look at the trends and if we look at, you know, the next few years, um, we have to do something now so we can prevent that as opposed to reacting once the problem is upon us. And I think that's that's where I've seen... Um, you know, our leadership at the water district really be, really be effective is that we're looking not at just this year's budget. We're looking at budgets that um, we're going to be facing in the next three, four, five years. And I think at the city, that's kind of the way we have to think is more on a five-year um, range. And it's not pleasant. It's not sexy. You know, it's, it's making a lot of painful decisions, but um, but I think we can be smart about it and still keep our services, um, you know, as 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 robust as we possibly can. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because I, I think that, you know, one of the charts <clears throat> I, that still I still that I still kind of wake up in the middle of the night thinking about is uh, I think it's it's always like chart A one in the budget, but it's always that first chart as far as like revenues and and um, and funds coming in. You just see the lines uh, go away from each other in the wrong direction over time. Uh, and, you know, it's there on the, you know, I think it's like the second page of the document, but I think, uh, you know, needs a, a bigger headline maybe. Um, so we need to pe- put it on the cover of the manual or something. Right? I, I, w- I would say so, at least, uh, you know, inside cover or something. It, 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 it does deserve, and, you know, it's right there and it's very transparent, but then there's um, the challenge of the political will to, to tackle it in some sense. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I don't know like how, uh, careful you are now that you're running as far as wanting to, to kind of talk about what those factors are that go into creating a budget that is just not sustainable. Right. So like the, uh, political pressure to spend money rather than to, um, either, um, keep, uh, wages, um, steady or at a, only at a reasonable clip of an increase, um, you know, specifically with, uh, public safety spending, right? Because that seems to be the biggest chunk of of growth. I don't have the exact kind of um, numbers on me at, on hand, but it still seems to be one of the biggest challenges for fiscal sustainability sustainability locally. Yeah, I think th- I think that's right, and I think you know, unfortunately, like I said, this public health emergency is going to be immediately followed or coupled with the economic um, emergency, right? I mean our emerge or uh, uh, economic crisis, right? So the public health crisis will be followed by the economic crisis and they're almost on parallel paths right now. Um, as one starts fading or maybe starts uh, becoming uh, more controllable, meaning public health, and I hope that happens soon. Um, but to the extent that we are going to have some 
really, really long-term consequences as a result. I think that's what we need to start identifying. So it will make us have to revisit all our funding um, ability and, you know, what we're, what we value uh, most and how we can make adjustments that are intelligent that, you know, um, uh, you know, I've never been somebody who says, let's dismantle this department or, you know, let's abolish, you know, the police or let's, you know, um, gut these things. But I do think we can be really intelligent and thoughtful about how do we realign certain things um, that make fiscal sense, but they also make um, sense um, with, you know, just social justice policy. I think those two things, it does take somebody who can be really, um, um, a critical thinker and not just be somebody who is, um, you know, who's going to make, take a knee jerk reaction or be, re, you know, or, or, or just think about this from, um, one perspective. So for me, I've tried to be really objective about my feelings about, you know, uh, what's, what's important. And the fact that there are certain things that drive our city, um, and drive the priorities in our city. We have it. I look at our demographics. So what's important to our demographic We're you know, we're, a city of 350,000, uh, give or take, um, you know, our demography is that, you know, 80% of us are Latino, um, you know, uh, 80% of us make less than $53,000 a year. Um, fit, more than 50% of us are foreign born, more than 50% of us are renters and tenants. That's why, you know, those subject matter areas that I've tried to focus on are on, uh, affordable housing to make sure that, you know, we at least settle on, something that makes sense for people to feel safe at home. Um, you know, public health. I mean, I realize that, you know, with this pandemic, it is just a real, real important issue to so many families. Um, safer neighborhoods. Um, you know, I think that as we talk about just, you know, um, accountability um, and, you know, resource allocation to departments, I think that, you, you know, public safety and law enforcement, it's a really broad topic. I think that, you know, just um, throwing more money at a problem doesn't solve it. I think it's how you spend it intelligently. I think that investing in youth, which is another principle that I'm, that I'm, that I'm obviously running on, is a way, I think it's, there's a nexus between that and public safety, right? To the extent that, you know, we invest in youth and people always say, well, it's sports, sports, sports. It's not really sports at all or alone. It's sports and athletics, and, um, but it is also the arts. It is also STEM. It is also science, technology, you know, education and math. Just these different um, areas that I think our youth are really talented in um, that we just don't spend the time to be to take a deep dive and say what lends itself well to our community demographic and what, you know, what will youth be interested in? I mean, we have a, you know, one of the youngest cities in the country. Our, 20, our median age is you know, between 27, 28 years old. So that means we have a really young population. But you know, if, if one thing I can say is that um, I've been really encouraged. So I'm really optimistic, as dismal as I've been speaking about you know, budgets and pandemics and everything else. You know, one thing that's come out of this is that I'm really hopeful because I've seen a lot of young people not only run for office, but they're actually engaged, right? And that's what I think all of us have always wanted, at least all of us say that publicly. I mean, whether, whether <laughs> all of us are genuine about it. Um, but I know that, um, look, I'm certainly encouraged by, you know, folks that agree with me and disagree with me, but they are spending hours to talk to us, to share their ideas, to share their thoughts, to maybe 
tell us, you know, this is why I think you should, you know, uh, uh, deliberate. Um, I, I'm just, you know, I just feel like, look, whatever happens in my race, I'm very hopeful and optimistic that the city is going to be in good hands because it seems like, you know, the, the folks that I saw that were young are now of age and they speak articulately on, on, on public policy um, issues. And that makes me feel really, really um, optimistic about the future because they are going to maybe hold those offices, but more importantly, hold us accountable on decisions that we make. And that is critically important to a community like ours. Mm-hmm. No, I, I absolutely agree. And I think it's um, one of these challenges as far as saying that, or what, what are the... Um, the lenses by which I think um, we kind of can address our challenges locally is like, how much do you see people as a burden versus how much you see people as a resource? And, yeah. you know, kind of growing up, you know, Central City, right, just tied of the uh, the uh, the gang violent, uh, gang violence epidemic in the 90s. It's a, you, know, you just saw a lot of really talented people that didn't um, kind of see a way out of the world that was constructed around them. And like anytime you get to inspire people to kind of see a different world or to, you um, put their energies and their lives and to say like, look, this is what you can do with your life. Like if this is what you want to do um, and just kind of opening their eyes, I think is uh, money well spent for sure. So I will still try yeah. to uh, tell you, you know, if I can get your commitment to, to open up the McFadden public library again, cause that was my, my, my childhood library. Um, I'd love to. That's on that. the, that, that's on, that's on the checklist, man. So uh, believe me that, that, you know, hopefully that's one in a series, Manny, because I think, you know, that's a brick and mortar library, but I think that, you know, we need those as much as we need also some unique, um, you know, spaces that now, you know, kids can use without, uh, you know, having, you know, a gigantic uh, library like our only library that we have. Um, I think there are ways that we can, you know, have safe spaces where, you know, where our kids can go study, but can access information. Maybe that's through a terminal and not through, you know, uh, shelves, although, you know, those environments do kind of lend themselves to, you know, teen spaces like we have. We have award-winning teen spaces at our library. I imagine if we could replicate that. Um, I know we're doing bookmobiles and I know we're doing different things that I'm hoping we're heading in that direction where, you know, we see that, look, we, we, we have to stop. We have to, you know, realize there are different ways to do this. And we need to reimagine this. Yeah, absolutely. So shout out to the uh, the teen space. My first real job with the city, I guess, uh, besides the, the, the volunteering. Um, so a wonderful experience there. Um, yeah, and I, I think it definitely is that, right? We kind of like create these mentorship opportunities and, um, you know, places where um, kids can grow. And I, I think that that's extremely important to a community. And, you know, I, I don't know how you feel as though, uh, or feel um, in regards to, you know, some things, you know, we know that the city does well and other things it doesn't do as well. And uh, at least what, what I'd already always kind of seen was that the city was pretty good at capital projects, right? Like, okay, we're going to get this money together. We're going to, like, set it aside, and we're going to put out this construction bid and have a building. Um, but staffing and, like, figuring out how to program and having flexibility um, was not something it was necessarily good at. But in our private and kind of, like, a social service sector, really good at programming, really good at kind of just, like, creative stuff on low budgets and bringing in volunteers, but then no actual spaces to, to, do, the, to do their their events um so yeah i don't know like you know how you you feel about those like public uh, private partnerships i think the um dell high center is probably a very good model of that where you know we have this public uh, space that was created at a park um, that was uh, invested in by the city but then the uh, actual programming 
is then done by the separate uh, public service uh, services entity. Yeah, I think, you know, I think that that's a good template or model going forward, right? Uh, you know, especially when, you know, there are, you know, there, there are public spaces to begin with, right? And to the extent that we can have them, you know, be, uh, the, you know, almost the first question that you ask the private sector partner is to say, how can we joint venture on making sure that there is a community benefit, right? Um, and, I, you know, Long Beach has been really good at that. I like their model because, you know, they'll squeeze out some convention space and re- maybe not even convention space, but conference space. And that's what, what I've always thought is that, um, you know, is there a way that we, you know, as buildings, projects are being developed, if there's a carve out for a public space? I mean, we, we tend to always think it's just open space. Well, open space is great, I think, coupled with maybe some also community space that you can use for, um, you know, whether it's a nonprofit, whether it's just a place where that neighborhood can can convene and, and, and be together. And, and I think it's not it's not a big ask. Right. I mean, we ask these, you know, the private sector to um, we we exact certain fees from them for parks. We exact certain fees from them well we used to um, at a higher clip for affordable housing um uh you know and so and and so i think it's certainly fair to say you know we do have some other needs that the community has and really the community needs to help us or we need to listen to the community so that they tell us this is what we want this is what's high on our priority list we need these spaces we want more open space or we want um this community benefit right and so that's where i think that conversation needs to be had you know way way up front on mm-hmm. that yeah, absolutely and so i guess what i'm you know going to be curious about and you know so you know, all this stuff sounds amazing and great and we, we love it and i think it's a, as american as apple pie um but to the skeptics out there it's like why well, you've already you've already been on the council for 12 years um and the stuff hasn't uh, gotten done why should anyone trust you to to do it once you're up there in the mayoral seat Good question. I mean, look, I'd ask the same question of anybody, but I think one of the things we were talking about when we first started this conversation was, you know, a strong mayor form of government versus a city manager form of government. And we realized as a a city manager form of government, you're only as effective as your ability to lead three other people and sometimes four other people when you need a five person super majority or two thirds majority to adopt a budget or to allocate and appropriate funds. but at the very least, you need a simple majority for most things. And that's the leadership I think um, we need to identify. And does does the next mayor have that ability to lead um, and bring consensus? Um, and so, yeah, the, the, the time I've been on the council, um, I think there was a moment when we had um, a good majority of council members that introduced things that the city would have never had. Um, and are now being dismantled, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I know we did as a council, because I came in with a council of, you know, just coincidentally with another group of three council members and then added some folks who are also very community, um, um, you know, based. But we did things like just things like the fiscal reserve policy. That was one that I spoke about. The other one was um, just in you know, uh, translation equipment that we didn't have at our council meetings or our community meetings. So we'd have people come to those meetings uh, who were monolingual Spanish speakers or monolingual Vietnamese speakers and 
they're out of luck, right? Because the presentation is done in English. We introduced that equipment uh, during my time. We introduced something called the Sunshine Ordinance um, that, you know, made our calendars, um, made government more transparent and more open. Is it ideal? Uh, of course not. But it was a first step in saying we have to have this accountability to the public. Um, we did things like, um, you know, declare Santa Ana as a sanctuary city. And we are still the only city in the county that's done that. Um, you know, we um, disengaged and uh, discontinued our contract with ICE at our jail. That was a very tough decision that many people didn't, didn't want us to take. Um, we have the only um, uh, deportation defense fund that gives uh, the right to counsel or counsel assistance to undocumented residents in Santa Ana that are facing, you know, separation from their families and deportation. We're the only city, we're only one of 14 cities in the country that do that. I mean, we were, we're, we're, we're in the, uh, you know, we're mentioned in the likes of Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, San Francisco, large cities. And I think for us to do that, those were our best moments. Um, and I think that I've been part of those moments. I helped draft the affordable housing ordinance called the housing opportunity ordinance. We didn't have an affordable housing policy when I came on the council. Um, so those are the things that I think my body of work demonstrate to people that, you know, nobody's here to slash and burn, dismantle, abolish. We were just here and, and my, my body of work, I hope demonstrates that I was here to res be responsive to the demographic that I saw needed the most help, right? And that's what I've tried to direct most of my efforts on. Of course, they've been, you know, uh, increasing, uh, you know, uh, open space, uh, making sure things are safe. Those are things that I'm proud of as well. But I mean, I think really trying to be responsive to the basic needs of some of our uh, communities have been that have been um, neglected and maybe have more needs at this point um, were things that I'm real proud of. So if I have to walk off into the sunset at the end of, um, you know, my term, I feel like, hey, I, I'm, I've been really privileged and blessed to do this because I think that, um, you know, it's made a difference. The sadness is, is that I know that the composition of a council, um, a, a majority composition of a council can dismantle a lot of good work. Um, and so hopefully, you know, again, for me, it's not one person because if I come on the council like I've been, I, um, you know, you can have a majority or super majority just, you know, basically uh, uh, do things differently. And, you know, and I respect all my colleagues and I respect anybody who runs for office, but you really do need to have a critical majority um, to be able to move public policy in our form of government. So that's where I think I've been, you know, I get along with people who I disagree with. You know, I, you know, there's a lot of Republicans. The majority of uh, my colleagues at the water district are Republicans, but they see me as somebody that they can trust and somebody that's reasonable and pragmatic and a problem solver. And I think at the council, that's what I've tried to be as well. Somebody that can work with those that I disagree with, but you know, it may be a single issue disagreement. We'll, uh, you know, we'll agree on something else. I tend not to be an ideologue and, um, and, you know, try to be open-minded and just, you know, again, more pragmatic in my approach. Right. So, what you know? I guess in, in in we're not we're not all perfect all the time, right? So, like, what is it that you regret in your time there? Like, if you have to look back on it, like, is there anything that you did regret that you're like, okay, damn, <laughs> I should not have done that? Yeah, you know, I think that um, you know what what was what was difficult. I think um, one that I look back on and say, you know, look, I have a tough time on on this. 
was the um, salary increase for um, for uh, uh, for the officers at that time. I think we could have we could have done an increase or an adjustment that wasn't um, as disproportionate, right? Because I think what we what we were looking at at the time is that I really do believe that our residents will pay sort of a premium for premium service, right? And that's where I think the disconnect was, is that, um, you know, I wish I could have gone back to that and maybe not, um, uh, or help negotiate those terms a little bit better and a little tighter. Um, I, I think that there was a, there was a moment in time that that was possible and, and, and it got away. It was a really uh, difficult moment. Um, um, and, you know, that's one that I regret. There's, uh, others that I regret, I think, you know, on 2525, um, another vote that I took to be supportive of the project initially. Um, and, you know, because I thought that it had gotten, it had been vetted through the same lens as all the other projects through a um, more discretionary review. And, you know, it seemed to meet all the, all the, um, uh, all the criteria that I've held other projects to. But then, you know, you realize this is really, this is something that um, those neighbors and really uh, people in the city gathered more than 10,000 signatures against. And that's what makes you think about, hey, are you, um, are you on the right side or should you reconsider? And I think there's no harm in reconsidering. I don't think there's a, there's a you know, I think when you become so, um, you can become so uh, paralyzed where you say, you know, look, I'm going to stick with this vote because this is where I, you know, this is where I landed. I think you can go back and reflect. And, you know, uh, I was hoping, you know, we could do that on, on, um, on Tuesday night when, you know, I introduced an item where, you know, you had signature gatherers on rent control. And I was trying to just, you know, um, uh, speak to the public and say, you know, what we're supposed to do is analyze things, maybe not on the merits, but, you know, look and say, there's so many of our residents and neighbors that gathered thousands of signatures. Let's at least give them their opportunity to be heard and, you know, let the voters um, decide we're not going to decide this. And that's where I, that's when, you know, my decision on 2525 was reconsidered when I saw a lot of those um, signatures that were gathered. I may have, you know, ultimately disagreed with the merits or the substance, but I think that to the extent that those many voters um, decided it's important for me to affix my name to a petition. That is the ultimate, I, I guess, you know, for me, um, you know, uh, democratic process, right? You know, signing an initiative, affixing your name to something that is a really strong form of patriotism. I mean, that's what happened during the cannabis discussion. We had signature gatherers that qualified, you know, an initiative on the ballot. So, to me, that those things I was hoping on Tuesday would also compel us to, to consider extending the time because um, you know wh whether you like the underlying merits of the of the cause for the initiative, you have to respect the fact that people lend their time to gathering signatures in support or in opposition. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely uh, agree. I think it's that uh, that flexing of the you know um, small d uh, or yeah, small d uh, democratic. Um, process where you actually get direct involvement and there's just so many sticky issues that I, I, I could imagine at the diocese it's, it's just hard to get consensus on that there is no uh, movement one way or another and then sometimes you just need to uh, put it to the voters so um, you know, to that end do you think there are any other like big issues that we're like well we haven't been able to get a consensus on this but it might be worth um, 
actually talking directly to the voters about? Yeah, you know, there's there's plenty, right? I mean, the only one that really comes to mind is one that comes up every July. So that's not fireworks. <laughs> so, you know, fireworks creates a lot of fireworks on the uh, on the council, but it's funny because it happens. You know, you can kind of bookend it from May to maybe you know end of July, maybe beginning of August, because that's where you tend to see the most concentrate or hear the most concentration of fireworks. And so I know that's been a challenge because. You know, I grew up here in Santa Ana with the Red Devil fireworks stands that mm-hmm. were all over town. And, you know, we buy our, you know, our legal fireworks and set them off and you get the piccolo peats and, the, you know, and, the, you know, the flares and everything. But it was pretty it was pretty tame. <laughs> <back then. laughs> you know, uh, you know, I, uh, you know, I, I am just shocked how creative people will be and, and how dangerous people will get at blowing up some of these. Um, they sound like quarter sticks of dynamite, right? These M80s mm-hmm. and, you know, where they're able to gather them from. And I know we have states that neighbor us that sell them legally. So people go to Nevada, they bring a bunch back and, mm-hmm. you know, and it is, it is really, uh, I, you know, I own a small dog and he just loses his mind. Right. Mm-hmm. And we lose our minds along with him. Um, so I can feel people's pain, but at the same time, I remember buying those little boxes of fireworks and it was kind of fun. Right. But right. I think we're looking at a totally different way of how we celebrate, you know, Independence Day. <laughs> yeah, it, it, and I think it, it definitely varies on, like, when you, when you grow up, right? So if you grow up with it, you almost kind of expect um, New Year's to, to be this way. So for me, um, you know, um, there's no public record of this except for this conversation now. But, you know, I was one of those kids, like, putting things into water bottles and like, oh, okay, let's see um, how loud we can make this <laughs> <laughs> go boom. Um, you know, there's a certain amount of mischievousness uh, there that I, I think that, you know, sometimes we we do forget as we get older and we're like, oh, these kids, what are they doing? And, you know, there's definitely public safety concerns. Don't get me wrong. Like, it's it's dangerous. Um, but there is kind of this uh, childhood and kind of youthful need to transgress sometimes that, uh, you know, I don't know, like, how... Um, and, and maybe this goes into other things like how much is more of guidance away from such behaviors versus a heavy handed like now you go to jail because you decided to uh, to do this sort of sort of approach. Um, but yeah, yeah, that- you know, no, you're right. I, I think that, you know, if, if there was a benign way to do it, then, you know, look, I think it, it's a no brainer. Right. I think it's really the challenge of how do you how do you legislate it? Right. You know, the proper use of it. And. And, you know, one of the other dilemmas and challenges to the whole debate is this is a way many nonprofits um, receive a lot of their funding for the year, right? So they wait the entire year for these few days where they can sell the fireworks and, and generate some revenue for their operations. And we're blessed to have a huge network of nonprofits that, you know, do probably as much, as much work as we do providing uh, resources to our residents as the city does in some case, in some cases. So, um you know, you don't want to cut them off at the knees either. So it it is a real, real dilemma, right? So that's where I, I know we struggled with it. I mean, every year it's it's a discussion point. So that was one that I thought was ripe for the voters because ultimately we just had too many good arguments on both sides um, of this issue. And when that happens, I think and when a when a council or any deliberative body becomes paralyzed, then I think that's when the voters have to step in and kind of say, okay you know, listen to us. This is where we are on this mm-hmm. issue. Yeah. And, and I, I think it's very hard to kind of gauge public sentiment sometimes, right? Um, you know, we, we do know that the, the voting public is a subset of the public at large, um, but you know, it's the best, it's the best um, 
you know, a mechanism that we have to really understand what people care about and what they, you know, how they, they land. So it's it's interesting that we don't use it as much. Um, because I don't even think, do we have any ballots coming up locally? Like, I don't think for this cycle, with everything else that's going on, we have any local ballots. You know, I think we have just, a, you know, some housekeeping stuff. I mean, it's not, but there's not anything that's real sexy. <laughs> I think there's just, I think there's uh, some codifying language in our municipal code that is going to, um, that is going to be uh, consistent with our charter. So that may be the only, um, the only maybe ballot issue before us. But again, you know, not, not as, not as juicy or as sexy as some of the others, you know, could have been, I know that there was a big review on that. And, and I was supportive of a lot of those charter measures, because I think that, again, to your point, um, this is the best tool we have to be able to engage the public and have them give us direction. And I think, again, you go back to this really odd conversation of whether you're a Madisonian or whether you're a Jeffersonian. And, you know, I think, you know, the Jeffersonian in me says, let the public um, you know, be heard on some of these issues. And, you know, when it comes to, you know, campaign finance reform, when it comes to, um, you know, whether we should have a super majority to deliberate on a budget or a simple majority, um, you know, those are questions that are profound, you know, and they really change the way we, you know, we do business. And, and yeah, the public, I think, should be heard, you know, they should be heard on, you know, do we want to, do you want your money? Because it's ultimately their money. How do you want your money allocated? Um, what's your, you know, what are your uh, issues that are priorities? So, yeah, I think that that that's fair. So, yeah, with with one of the priorities that uh, folks have been talking about, and, and you know, the issue gets um, um, more and more pressing as, as time goes on, is the uh, crisis of, of homelessness. And you know, and, and I do want to separate out the uh, crisis of homelessness and chronic homelessness versus affordability, because they are kind of definitely on the same spectrum of, of issues, but specifically to chronic homelessness and the impact of that in our community. Like, what is the actual plan to, to fix this, to, to make it so that we're, we're at a um, at a situation where, you know, our, uh, our, our community is not necessarily as exposed or impacted by this as it has been? Yeah. Look, and I think every community is asking the same question, right? How do we address this? Because it is, it is so far reaching. Um, and, you know, I don't think anybody has been, um, hasn't been, you know, impacted by it. For Santa Ana, I think what we saw was the Jones case out of Boise really gave the direction that we thought uh, we needed to have. So that case is a Ninth Circuit case that governs whether or not you could, um, you know, uh, remove somebody or detain somebody and cite somebody for uh, camping or um, being on, you know, the public right of way. And, and, and that's where our unsheltered are, our, our homeless population are, right? They'll find a space where they can kind of camp out. Because when it's private property, that private property owner has rights that, you know, can have that person or persons removed. But for a public agency and for, you know, a public, um, um, you know, uh, municipal government like ours, we can only do it now post um, uh, that Boise case only if we have beds available, right, to, um, to take um, the unhoused too. So the theory was, um, let's have a shelter that we can take our homeless population too. And I say our, and I, I almost mean those that are kind of indigenous to Santa Ana, those that, you know, um, we know have either had, uh, you know, been chronic substance abusers, have mental health issues. Maybe they've had a catastrophic injury, they've lost their job or, you know, rents. I mean, the whole spectrum, but those that are chronic, 
um, we did have some indigenous that were indigenous to Santa Ana. And we thought, well, let's find a way to comply with the law so we don't have them camping out, um, you know, in neighborhoods and, and camping out in front of our public libraries where kids are trying to go and, you know, access services and, you know, and, and be in a safe space. Um, so the thought was doing that, that way we can enforce our anti-camping uh, laws. Um, but what we started seeing, and we now have active litigation on this, is that you have other cities that bring their homeless populations here under the guise of providing them other social services. So let's just say, you know, one of the other 33 cities, um, and I would exempt a lot of the cities like Anaheim, Fullerton, you know, Costa Mesa, uh, Tustin, those that are building their own shelters, um, others that are unwilling to provide any services services to them, it's easy to just shuttle them over to Santa Ana and say, hey, you know, we're bringing them here for X service. Um, just because we are the county seat, a lot of the services tend to be, you know, uh, housed here, but then they never take them back to their community of origin, right? So we absorb the county's um, unsheltered population. And that to me is not fair because what it is saying is that our community of color our community of working families and low-income families have to absorb yet another issue that um, isn't, again, indigenous to us. Those that we do have that are, you know, residents and are from Santa Ana, we have a responsibility to be compassionate, intelligent about um, providing a safe space for them, rehabilitating them. But I don't think we should have that responsibility to all thirty-four, all thirty-three cities in the county, right? Um, so that's, you know sort of my thought on that. Um, but it's, it's so complicated that, um, it is going to take a multi jurisdictional decision, you know, uh, effort. And I know that judge Carter, who was overseeing the Catholic workers case that governs, you know, basically the homeless issue in the County, um, uh, you know, has his hands full. I mean, there was an idea where you were going to have a North spa in North County, central spa here, and then South spa in South County. Well, we were always fighting that, why would, you know, the South Spa include Santa Ana, but it's not exclusively Santa Ana. It has a lot of other cities. And we thought we've done a lot for many years. I mean, you know, why wouldn't other cities step up and say, okay, there's plenty of other safe, large spaces where you can have, um, you know, a safe shelter um, uh, constructed. So, you know, I, I, my theory has always been, we'll do our share as a city, but we shouldn't be the exclusive um, provider for these services because ultimately we're not even the vested agency that's responsible for providing these social services. It's the county. And what they found in that Catholic workers case is that the county had close to, you know, $300,000, $400,000 or $300 million unspent <laughs> of monies that they received from HUD for this very reason, right? For mental health, for, um, you know, uh, homeless issues. And that is just deplorable right that you know you have that money and you don't spend it when you know the problem is pervasive um in our county but especially in santa Ana. so to me they kind of singled out our community to say let them deal with it and now we're spending you know close you know 17 20 million dollars a year on just this issue when we could be spending it on youth we could be spending it on infrastructure that's gone unaddressed we could be spending it on so many other things and so that's the real sadness here yeah, no, absolutely. I agree. And um, it's something where you look at the systemic um, disparities that we have. And the, uh, I think that's part of the, the struggle of this particular community is how to address uh, these situations that have these very 
um, deep-rooted causes, um, and that sometimes they're not as obvious. And it can be as bureaucratic as a um, inmate release procedure that doesn't seem like it has anything to do with um, a history of, uh, of uh, racism or um, a lack of, of environmental justice. But in fact, they are kind of deeply rooted in that. So if we take a look at the music facility um, near El Toro, um, near, near the El Toro base um, and uh, close to Irvine, you know, they never release anyone directly into the public. It's always like, um, you know, shuttled off somewhere else or back to point of origin, but there's not really direct release into the community. Whereas here, you know, if you're booked anywhere uh, by the OC sheriffs, you end up in downtown Santa Ana and released at midnight. I think it's uh, what, 12.01 uh, so that you, they're able to collect an additional day's worth of, um, of payment. And then, you know, yeah. they're, they're, yeah. In, they're in our community. And, you know, that's the, um, the result of bureaucracies and that's why like maybe like you know having to to, to dive into all this minutiae is really important so i appreciate appreciate that and i do appreciate actually the city's lawsuit and I, I know you probably can't talk about it in depth since it's ongoing litigation but i think a lot of people finally uh were, were pretty happy with that um there, so I, I guess I, I don't want to keep you too long like i can keep on going but i know that uh people seem to be trying to get your attention uh in the background uh, or opening up the, the door so um <laughs> sorry <laughs> i know it's 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 uh everybody so we 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 now do lunch at three or four in the afternoon which is really bizarre right we're just totally i mean our days blend into one another our our, our hours blend into one another so yeah it it um you know, we're, we're, we're just trying to hang in there, but yeah, it, it is certainly a different um, schedule that everybody's on. <laughs> okay. Um, so th- there were two things I did want to ask you about if you have a little bit more time right now, uh, but I know you, you guys, I guess you got to get to lunch soon or. Yeah. Well, just, the, just with the kids and uh, you know, yeah, but go ahead. Okay. Um, so I, I guess the, the first one um it's about the the relationship and the partnership with the school district. So, don't know, um, you know, because I think these are the kind of the you know the city and the schools are essentially kind of two pillars um, that make up our, our local government here and that interact with the most amount of our residents. So, I don't know if you can kind of like talk a little bit more about what you envision there uh, between uh, the city and the school district. Um, and then the yeah. second one um, will just be about uh, the term civilianization. If you can explain that to, to folks. <laughs> oh, man. You, yeah. you chose some some heavy topics to wind up with. Um, that, that may take me to dinner. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, uh, you know, just, you know, very high level on both, just because I know that we are a little short on time, is that, um, you know, for me, I'm really, I'm really proud of the work that's being done at the school. Um, district, I think that, you know, they've come a long way and they, you know, they are doing some really great work there. I, um, you know, I applaud their efforts at introducing the ethnic studies requirement because I'm an old Chicano studies minor from, um, from Cal. So um, uh, I know that to me, we have such a unique demographic that unfortunately, you know, we don't have our history books speak to um, our histories or our identities. So I know it was a, um, it was a critical step that was taken to make sure that we have, um, you know, people who are graduating high school who are going to be proud of what, you know, of, of, of who they are and to know themselves a little bit better and to be proud of their identities and not have, not go through that crisis and wonder, well, why, why is my history not valuable enough to be discussed, right. Or, or addressed. And so I certainly appreciate that. I think there are going to be opportunities on, on a lot of different fronts with the school district on how we can partner on infrastructure. You know, this pandemic's taught us that we have really weak infrastructure that's going to be leading us into, um, into the, you know, the next 10 years. 
right? Um, how we do broadband better, how we do um, internet access better, um, how we uh, maybe jointly use some facilities that um, lend themselves to our dilemma, which is we have a lack of open space. The, the district has some open space and maybe there's ways that we can jointly use those sites um, to, uh, you know, to make sure that people or kids and families have a chance to, you know, walk on green grass, right? And um, and I think that we've done that successfully with a few campuses. I think, you know, the city certainly doesn't have the money to buy park space because that, you know, is just cost prohibitive at some point. We, we, we are incorporating some parks, but not to the extent that we can um, on the scale that I'd like. But we do have a lot of school uh, open space that we might be able to, you know, uh, lease jointly hold, uh, you know, and, and maintain and carry a policy on and make sure that it's in good shape, but we use it maybe when it's not in use by the, um, you know, by, by students, uh, weekends, maybe after school evening. Um, so those are things that I think we can, you know, uh, collaborate on also, you know, library use, they have libraries there. Maybe we could, you know, maybe those are mobile library sites that we're talking about. Maybe those stay open a little bit longer and, you know, resource centers that could be community centers that we could, you know, uh, joint venture on different things that I think right now there is a good moment in time where we have, you know, really good, I think, you know, school board members, I think, um, you know, hopefully we have a good set of council members that are going to be open minded about that. Civilianizing is a whole different topic, obviously, but to me, it's one that is critically important, you know, in the years to come. And I've always thought that, um, uh, look, it could be a benefit both to the public and to our officers that serve. Um, I know just as an example, um, there's a case out in South Pasadena um, about a young woman who was an actor in Stand and Deliver, an old movie about uh, Garfield High School. In any event, her name is Vanessa Marquez. She was going through some mental illness issues. Um, the police come um, to do a welfare check and she gets shot in back many, many times and gets killed and you know, and, and she was not a real threat to anybody, but I think she was under, you know, she was ill. And, um, and that was probably the best case study for me of what could have been done if we would have civilianized that encounter. Right. And right. so what does the, the term civilianization actually like mean then? Oh, sorry. So civilianizing is maybe traditional policing by police officers, those incidents being handled by professional, in this case, healthcare workers, right. Or mental health workers. So Vanessa would have been visited not by police for her welfare check, but she would have been visited by maybe a professional healthcare staff or, 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 or professional, right? Somebody who can maybe engage better and has the professional experience to be able to, you know, settle and calm the situation. I think it's unfair for us to demand our officers deal with mental health uh, problems that, you know, some of our public may have because they really don't have the training, um, uh, uh, sufficient training to do that. But we have professionals that do. And maybe they could de-escalate that situation better than maybe an officer would. Um, and we are asking our officers to do things that, you know, really isn't in their resume to do, you know, to begin with. And so um, to the extent we can civilianize some of those uh, those responsibilities, there's even cities that have like assigned, um, you know, non-sworn staff to be able to go and handle a, you know, a, a simple collision, right? So there's a collision that takes place. Sometimes it takes the time of officers to have to be there. 
uh, divert traffic, write up reports, and it takes hours and hours. And I know many of our residents complain about our response times that, you know, somebody will call, uh, you know, officers won't show up for hours. Um, well, if they were tasked with, you know, being more exclusive to those uh, to those situations that are maybe dangerous conditions where you have weapons involved, where you have, you know, loss of life involved, um, or those types of dangers, then, you know, I think we could deploy a lot faster and maybe have civilians do the work of, you know, encountering maybe homeless folks, encountering folks with mental health conditions, um, welfare checks, and maybe even, you know, simple traffic um, collisions that could be handled by somebody who understands how to write a report, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. Uh, yeah, so thanks for, for the explainer on that. And I think it's, you know, generally going in the, in the right direction. It's, you know, fiscally more responsible, um, better outcomes, and then, you know, figuring out how to have been figuring out how to get there is a, definitely the, the tough question. Um, yeah. So, so with that, I don't want to keep you much longer. I think we can do this all, all night and all, uh, all, all evening, all night and still have more to discuss. Um, but is there anything you wanted to, to leave with uh, before you have to get going? Uh, you know, more than anything, look, I, I just enjoy the time talking about like you, you know, policy and, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of a nerd as well. And, um, you know, I, I, I like this stuff for, you know, for the value of just, um, um, you know, understanding that our city is so unique, um, again, and it's not, I, I just never want anybody to think that it's doom and gloom. I think if anything, we really are at the precipice of, you know, uh, defining ourselves better, um, of being proud of who we are. Cause I know when I came on the council, there was sort of an identity crisis, Santa Ana, you know, wanted to be like Irvine and wanted to be like a South County city. Look, uh, and, and, you know, once, you know, I think some of us came on, we realized uh, the uniqueness of being raised in Santa Ana is that uh, most of us are proud of our city, you know, and there is nothing to be, to feel stigmatized about or be ashamed of. If anything, we should use our um, sort of defining um, uh, places as, as, as good things, right? We are the, we are uniquely, an urban area with, you know, uh, historic architecture, with a diverse community, with a lot of cultures, with a lot of beautiful things, with a lot of talented and skilled people, multi-languages being spoken. So I think that, you know, those are, those are benefits, right? Those are things that, you know, we should be celebrating instead of running from. And that's something I hope that if I'm, again, if I'm blessed enough to, you know, be able to lead the city, um, that's one thing I do want to change, which is that, um, which is that child's perception of him or herself and of the city that they live in and being ashamed to say that they live in Santa Ana. Cause I've heard that narrative many times. And for me, that's really a tough thing for me to swallow. Um, because I know that we have, uh, really, really, you know, decent, you know, uh, you know, big hearted people in our city and, you know, and, and quality folks. And, and I just don't want, uh, kids to have to be raised in that sort of, um, in that sort of narrative. All right, cool. Well, well thank you for coming on. Um, and yeah, well, I guess we'll, we'll, we'll talk to you later and we'll see you on the virtual campaign trail. I imagine. Right. I know the virtual campaign trail, man, will be, you know, we may not log a lot of steps, but we're, we're logging a lot of time on zoom and, you know, and, and man, every other platform there is right. Google meets and, you know, you know, WebEx. And I, I, that's the one thing I think that will remain after this pandemic, a lot of these things. <laughs> All right.
Cool. But I, but, but I appreciate the time, Manny, and thank you for doing this. This is a good service to all of us in the community because I think it's not often that we get a chance to, you know, have people who, um, you know, um, represent us be able to kind of share sort of in-depth, um, you know, some issues that are important. And I think you know those um, and I think you draw them out well. So I want to, you know, I want to thank you on behalf of all, on behalf of all the <laughs> residents, because if not, then it's a typical campaign cycle where you're just pushing stuff out. That's kind of superficial and, you know, it's not real detailed. And I think, you know, only on exchanges like this, can you get real specific? Yeah, no, these are year long problems. So they deserve at least an hour to, to dive into. <laughs> um, and I, I, I do take the compliment. You did call me a nerd and I appreciate that. So thank you. Um, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, well, take it take it from a good place, man. Yeah, I'm, I, I called myself one too, and that, that to me is a bad. It's, it's a badge of honor. Yeah, yeah, no, it's all good, man. It's all good. I, I grew up a nerd in Santa Ana, and I I love the fact that I did. <laughs> there you go, man. I'm honorary. <laughs> all right. Well, take care, Vince. All right. all right, you too, Manny. Thanks for the time. All right, so that was our discussion with uh, with uh, Councilmember Sarmiento. Um, hopefully, you got a better understanding of who he is and a better understanding of his policies there. Uh, you know, it's it's one of these things. I think you know the the thing that he left us with was the idea of being proud of where you come from, and I am definitely proud of where I came from. I, I think a lot of us here in Santa Ana are extremely attached to it. It's a place that we love and we care about, and you know, none of us would be doing the work that we do out there um, if we didn't. And, you know, it's a love of community, I think, that keeps this whole place uh, running. You know, this uh, is a, a challenging uh, place in, in many ways. It's a very loving, very rich place in, in others. And I, I think that, you know, once we kind of keep working together to try to figure out what these problems are that are they're facing all of us and coming together as a community, that that's the way that we tackle uh, things. So, you know, this election is one part of that, uh, being involved in in politics and government is one way to, to be involved in your community, but it's not the only way. And I, you know, hope that I never, um, you know, only talk about public policy or, or government's uh, structures and stuff. You know, that's you know definitely something I geek out about. But you know, what's just as important is you know that mentorship um, that you received or the mentorship that you're giving, and you know everything that you know everyday people do in the city for each other and do it for, for others. And, you know, we sometimes get that within our faith communities. Uh, other times it might be the sports leagues that we're a part of. Uh, it could be as simple as going to, you know, your favorite bar and meeting the same people and being part of that community, quite honestly. Let's, you know, not uh, not misjudge the, the value of community there either. It's just that there's so much to do and it could be overwhelming. And at the end of the day, I think I appreciate anyone that's trying to, to do um, you know, something about it. And, uh, you know, whatever that issue is, I say, you know, go for it, uh, connect with people around you and, you know, just try to figure out ways to love your community and, you know, love each other. And especially, um, as we go through this together. So this is Manny Escamilla thanking you for listening. Uh, yeah, thank you, uh, Edgar and the Michael Scott Paper Company Studios for doing another wonderful recording uh, session. I have no idea what music we're using today, so we're going to have to figure that out over the next uh, couple hours to see whose song we're going to add. So thank you to them, whoever they are, uh, for letting us use their, their song in this um, outro.
Just stop.